Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramithius and today we're going to be investigating one of the most pivotal mannish characters in Tamriel's history, although not a man herself, who turned the tide against the elves and established the first empire of men on Cyrodiil. Today we are asking, who is Alessia? Before we get to that though, I just want to give you some quick updates on the Roberts Radio Network and on this podcast. I, there we have a few new shows and new things going on within the Robots Radio Network. Tom has started up the SCP Foundation Files, which is a podcast dedicated to the SCP Foundation. So, and presenting that through a very strange medium of an SCP bot and doing something with the vocals for that. It sounds really, really interesting. But if you're interested in the SCP Foundation, go and check that out. Um, they are also doing something with um, submissions for the SCP um, Foundation. There's some bits um, on the Robots Radio Discord under the title SCP Killed Me. Um, He's taking writing submissions for discussions for the various ways in which the things in the SCP universe killed you and is offering commissions for that as well. So if you like the SCP Foundation and you do some writing and you want to earn a little bit extra, go and check that out. Details are all on the Robots Radio Discord. I will put a link to that Discord server in the show notes. And I also wanted to give a shout out, which I've been terrible at lately, to the ESO Hub, which is Alcast's site for all things ESO. He's been listening to me on there for a while alongside various other podcasts like the UES podcast and Scroll Talk and various other ones that cover ESO topics. So if you want to find out pretty much anything on there from builds to guides to how to work your way through content to what events are going on in game at the moment, go check out the ESO Hub. It is a lovely resource with pretty much everything you need to know about current events in the game. And as much as my content's been slacking lately, I've been doing various guest spots in various places. So if you want um, more content that I've been producing and not really or been involved with, um, but haven't been announcing it through this podcast quite on time. Uh, if you can check out the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, they've been recently taking a dive into some of the weirder aspects of the Elder Scrolls lore, which is absolutely this show's bread and butter. So I've been taking the time to chat uh, with Tom and Lotus about various things to do with the weirder side of Elder Scrolls lore, like the um, like the towers I've been on to chat about as well. So do go and check those episodes out if you're interested on me interacting with other people and having multiple takes on things as we talk through stuff. And also Tom and Lotus's opinions on some of the stuff that they're discussing that I don't quite agree with, but there's some similar similarities. Their most recent episode as the time of this recording is on the dream sleeve. Um, and I agree with quite a few of the things that they've been saying about that. So do go and check those episodes out as well. And on this podcast, I want to say thank you so much to my new patrons. So thank you very much to Crimps, Ruan and Nuran, and David Rhodes Wilson, who've all signed up for this show's Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, do go to patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty and check it out there. It's on a per episode pledge at the moment because my content is a little sporadic and I'll get to that in a bit. Um, but um, if you feel like supporting the show and getting access to exclusive notes on how I make the show, access to things a little earlier um, when they come out and just some input into the show as I make them, then do go and check that out at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. I also had an email lately from William who is discussing the Lorkaposh theory that I wanted to share with you. Hi, Aramithius. Went on a binge of your back catalogue recently and had a couple of things I wanted to share with you. Firstly, I realised you gave a pretty long response to my email from ages ago about the towers that I somehow never noticed. I often listen to podcasts at work, so maybe I took my headphones off or something and missed it. I was glad to hear that you found the idea interesting. Anyway, having heard a number of your podcasts back to back over the last few days, I have to say that you've completely sold me on your Lorcan equals Akatosh idea. 
I think you called it a tinfoil hat idea, but I'm completely convinced now. There's just too many coincidences to ignore. In fact, I would go so far as to say I'm convinced both Lorcan and Akatosh are equal emanations of Sithis. A Sithis is variously thought of by both Dunma and Ultma as the potential for separation, the possibility for things to be separate at all, and the breaking of the absolute stasis of Anu. I think it's entirely reasonable to hear these things being said and to think of the Time God as being a necessary part of all this. The existence of the passage of time as something a mind is experiencing is necessary for it to observe and define itself and other beings and exist as separate from them. If there's only ever a single moment, then nothing can ever be separated from a new unity. But the connections are less metaphysical than that. There are connections with Pelinol as the Shezerin and Akatosh. Lorcan and Akatosh are explicitly connected through the Amulet of Kings, which according to the Chimadabal Ballad is made from Lorcan's blood, but is also clearly tied to Akatosh, the fact that Pelinol is suggested to have been displaced in time. Um, in fact, seems to be a general connection between the Shezerines and Akatosh. Tiber Septim seems to be pretty unambiguously tied to Lorcan and was himself a dragonborn and the founder of a line of dragonborn emperors. The comments made by the avatar of Tiber Septim in Morrowind, Wolf, seems also to match somewhat the idea outlined in Before the Ages of Man about mannish empires emerging and receding, which may also be relevant. But in fact, those who are in the camp that the last dragonborn is a Shezerine or Mantling Shore would be hard-pressed, I think, to deny some of the akatosh Lokan connection. Then there's also the kind Kinnereth connection via the Thum. I'm not sure why she is both teaching the Nords the Thum and appearing to Alessia to reveal the coming of Pelinal if there is not some sort of connection between Lokan and Akatosh. That the apparent wife of Shore is connected to the Thum and the Dragonborn seems odd otherwise. I also think the thing about Lokan sometimes losing his heart willingly or spitting it out in the case of Shore, Son of Shore is a reference to this. Auriel is an aspect of Akatosh that is specifically Moorish and therefore the part of the whole that is most opposed to the reality that's been created. I've also come to a conclusion about the Middle Dawn. The pantheon inherited from the Aelids by the Alessian Order featured Akatosh, but it was a specifically Moorish version of Akatosh that had started to be worshipped in the shape of an elf. The selectives took the Time Dragon and stripped out the Moorish and incidentally the most conservative and backwards-facing elements of the Time Deity and in doing so created Oriel, now no longer an elven-shaped interpretation of Akatosh. Of course they would do that, seeing that the Eldra is explicitly their ancestors after all, was now an ultimate deity that always was. Of course this new, who had always existed, deity had been the one to tear out the heart of Lokan. he just hadn't been there until the Selectives placed him throughout all time when they extracted him out of Akatosh. That's my explanation for the idea of the Selectives perceiving Akatosh as an elven deity anyway. Because the Aelids and Ultma had, due to their notions of the Aedra's ancestors, begun to understand and represent Akatosh as an elf and the Selectives broke open the dragon and tore out all of the Moorish conservatism and reforged Akatosh the dragon god. I'm also thinking about the notion that the Ultma, Ultma version of the time god became an ancestor because of their cultural tendency to look backwards towards the beginning of time and this notion ties in well I think. Incidentally, the fact that the Nords see Shaw as having removed his own heart and their version of the time deity being an explicitly forward-facing idea of time is probably not a coincidence either. Anyway, keep up the good work. Firstly, that's an awful lot to take in. So, William, thank you ever so much for sending that. And I did take a fairly long time mulling back to it. I actually got this email quite a few weeks ago, but I wanted to take, um, take the time to kind of absorb it all and get a proper response done before I sent it out. I, I really like the idea of the idea of time as change rather than an aspect of stasis, meaning that Lorcan and Akatosh are linked because both time and space are things that support change. I mean, if you go back to one of the other justifications for Lorcatosh, um, you can get into notions of if space-time is a unitary thing, then why do we have both the space god and the time god? in the Elder Scrolls, unless they're secretly one thing. There's a bunch of other bits and pieces in there as well, little things that make my ears prick up, like the, the one that I can remember most off the top of my head is the Drake Scale Drum from Sermon 37 um, that was published in ESO, um, where the Drake Scales are Akatosh and Lorcan is the Doom Drum. They're kind of linked. And I really like the idea that you're getting into with Palinol and trying to tie them together 
um, which we'll discuss a bit more in this episode on Alessia, so I don't want to spoil too much. But the idea of that, the madness of Akka and Lorcan having a shared madness, if indeed Pelinol is a Shezarine, really seems to kind of tie that together. Um, I'm trying to think quite where I think the idea of um, Lorcan and Akatosh is mirror br- having being mirror brothers um, is um, in Etard or Etard, Eight Adress, Eight the Dreamer. Um, but if they are mirror brothers, then they might almost be the same thing. Are they identical twins? Which kind of implies that that if you go into the biology of identical twins, they were one and then split. Um, which would also account for the kind of the madness aspect of it, because some individual unitary personality has then been split, um, but not subgradiated, which is kind of the interesting difference there. Um, so ma- madness is the kind of end result, really, for that, the the obvious thing to happen if you're trying to maintain yourself as a unitary personality. And the Klein Kinnereth stuff is a lovely connection to have made. It's not one that I've seen before. Um, but if you're trying to think of Kine as the wife of Lorcan, then it absolutely makes sense if she's kind of passing messages and being involved with the Thum if Kine if Kine if Akatosh and Lorcan are the same being, then managing both the Thum and the drag and the blessings of being a dragonborn all through that sort of similar connection makes a lot more sense. Um, and it also sort of ties up, as you say, the idea of being willing to spit your heart out or tear your heart out. Um, that only uh, that makes a lot more sense if Akatoshi is the one doing it, although that's a little bit debatable, I suppose, because you've got some that say Akatosh did it, some that say Trinomac did it. Um, but if Lokan is doing it willingly and Akatosh is in, at least involved in the process, then if they are the same being, then agreeing with yourself that this kind of thing has to be done makes it a lot more of a commonsensical decision to tear out Lokan's heart. Because there are some accounts, according to Varieties of Faith, I think it is, that talk about Lokan being separated from his divine centre sometimes unwillingly which suggests there are some times where he is willing for it to happen. And if Akatosh and Lokan are the same being, then it absolutely makes sense that um, they, he would be willing to make that sort of a separation. So yeah, thank you ever so much for your email, William. It's been fant- um, fantastic to go through that with you. I will stick in a, um, another reply to you as well, because I've noticed that there's another one landed in my inbox today from you. And so I will get back to you on that. Um, but, and if anyone else wants to email me on um, anything like this for me to go through, um, then drop me a line at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. I absolutely love getting emails. I maybe um, take a little bit of time to get back to you because life is busy, but I will do what I can um, to respond on the podcast or and or drop you an email back. It's absolutely fantastic to hear from you and I absolutely love it. Um, but on the notion of life kind of swallowing everything, just a brief announcement that after this episode comes out, I will be taking a hopefully short break um, from producing podcasts here. I've been producing them fairly sporadically as it is, and I think I just need to spend some time to kind of gather some ideas together and get some research done without necessarily thinking, oh, this has got to be for this particular episode or uh, that it's got to be on a particular schedule so I can kind of get a bit ahead of the curve and then I can hopefully keep up the tempo a bit more um, as and when I do come back or potentially look at something else. I've been getting into various other fandoms lately, which I know is absolute heresy for a podcast like this. Um, but um, I will see how all, all of that goes and take a think about it. And either way, either way, whatever happens with this, you guys will be the first to know. Keep subscribed to this and I will let you know what's happening hopefully it will be a short break and then we can get back to the Elder Scrolls lore but we'll see life is kind of keeping everything up at the moment so I need to just stop at least part of it so I can just kind of take stock if you like but but thank you ever so much for all of the support that I've been getting from my patrons 
and everyone else that's kind of involved in the community on the written uncertainty discord server and just everywhere else in general where i'm involved with the Elder scrolls law community it's just fantastic being involved with you all and coming up with all of these all these discoveries with the elder within the elder scrolls law and coming up and looking at all of these other bits and pieces of the elder scrolls law and oh one final thought before we get started on alessia um there has been a new addition to the elder scrolls podcast family we have the quill and vile podcast which is hosted by cynical alchemist and livia or depending on quite how you pronounce your double l livia but i'm fairly certain she pronounces it livia having listened to the thing but they dig into um some various obscure bits of the elder scrolls lore as well um bits there there's not an awful lot written about but a few things to um to piece together um and, and also looking at the various bits of alchemical lore within the elder scrolls as a specific focus for them so they've got a very very specific focus in how they look at things and what they look at but it's an absolutely fantastic show as well as presenting some of the news for ESO and, Beth- and Bethesda in general so do go and check that out uh, that's the Quill and Vile podcast it's available on Spotify at the moment I'm not sure quite where else um, I'm assuming on Anchor but I'm not sure whether it's got as far as Apple Podcasts and the various things that feed off Apple Podcasts yet but with that I think we should get to Empress Alessia Before we start, as usual, my disclaimer with this, this is my own understanding of Alessia and not necessarily the whole truth of the matter. You might have other ideas, and if so, I'd absolutely love to hear them. Please do email me at writtenuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at Aramithius. Find me at the Written and Uncertainty Discord server, which will be linked in the show notes here, or just anywhere else where I exist really I will be on the TS Lost subreddit intermittently and various other Elder Scrolls community discords wherever you can find me I love to chat about lore so if you have other opinions on Alessia please do let me know um, I will be qu- linking everything that I'm quoting and using to back up my theories that I'm presenting here um, at the blog um, at the blog post that follows this podcast as the transcript and that's at writteninuncertainty.com forward slash podcast forward slash Alessia. So with all that done, I think we probably need a brief description of Alessia. But Alessia was the first empress of Cyrodiil, as I've alluded to. She creates the first human empire of Cyrodiil, I suppose. Um, you could probably call the aliens that came before um, an empire. They call themselves, uh, there was references to the Imperium Silace uh, in some documents, but that's not typically called an empire, but she was the first human empress of Cyrodiil. She's also known as the Slave Queen because she rose up against the alien rulers of the Heartland in the 242nd year of the First Era because they had enslaved the Needs who were living in Cyrod at the time. Alessia's rebellion succeeded within a year, from what we can tell. The date for the success of the rebellion is the year 243. Um, Thanks to her appeals to the gods and various other kinds of both supernatural and mundane help um, to establish the first Manish Empire on Tamriel. She went on to create the Pantheon of the Eight Divines and thereby shape a lot of human culture for many, many centuries to come. She also founded the Imperial line in a decidedly non-human fashion. Uh, During the year-long rebellion against the Aelids, she found time to fall in love with Morahouse the Winged Bull, Kain's son, and the next Emperor of Cyrodiil after her was Belhaza the Man Bull. Whether he's the first Minotaur is debatable, but Alessia is certainly responsible for the Imperial line um, through him, or at least the first Imperial line, and then Various others have tried to claim legitimacy by appealing to Alessia as the source of that. Um, she also potentially goes on to influence generations of emperors fairly directly through the Amulet of Kings, which we'll discuss in a bit more detail towards the end of this podcast. Well, first of all, I think we should probably get started on her origins. 
I've touched on the origins of men before on this podcast, but I wanted to dig into her origin specifically a little bit more, which involves untangling some of the Manish tribes around Sirad. She is, she is, was, um, a need, and is noted in the book The Adabala as the following, quote, Perif's original tribe is unknown, but she grew up in Sard and on Sardavar lead, where the Aelids herded in men from across all the Nibbon, Kothri, Need, Alkema, men of Kreeth, though those were later known to be imported from the north, Keptu, men of Gay, who were eventually destroyed when the Flower King Lichi made great sacrifice to an insect god named Lost, Alharad, men of Crete, men of Ket, others, but this was Sirid, the heart of the Imperatum Silace, where men knew no freedom, even to keep family or choice of name except in secret and so to their alien masters, all of these designations were irrelevant. This makes Alessia both Nidic and from the area of the Nibbon, essentially a precursor to the Nibbanese Cyrodiilic peoples, which is why if you look at one of the um, Lawmaster's archives where Abnathan talks about his heritage, he talks about the Nibbanese being the purest example of needs that you will find on Tamriel. But in addition to that, Alessia also engaged in a fair bit of travelling. She grew up in Sard, as the text notes, which is on the southern banks of the Nibbon. And the next thing we hear about her is that she's in Sancrator, which is in the foothills of the Colobian Highlands, some way to the northwest of Cyrodiil. And it's about half the length of Cyrodiil away from Sard. I'll post a map on the blog post that goes alongside this podcast so you can just see the sheer scale of that. Um, So she's evidently travelled a fair way. It's not explicitly said, but I think the most reasonable assumption for why she's there is that she ran away at some point. Given that the book, The Legendary Sancrator, notes that the Nordic conquests that would eventually reach Morrowind and High Rock began two years before Alessia's rebellion, it's possible that she headed north with the explicit goal of either bringing the Nords into Cyrodiil to overthrow the Aelids or joining the Nords in their expansion. I think that's frankly probable for what she was doing and may, given quite how shrewd she's been politically, that it was a play to get the Nords involved and to be in a place where she could appeal to the Nords relatively easily for them to come into Syrid and interfere. But we don't have any evidence that that was her intention because we don't have a lot of information about her prior to Sancrator. And... A quick note before we move on, I've been using the term Cyrid to refer to the land rather than Cyrodiil, which is probably a bit strange to some of you. Uh, most of the documents around Alessia's time refer to the land as Cyrid, which is part of the reason why I'm doing it. But there's also a great post by the Inducer on Reddit that points out that Cyrodiil probably means people of Cyrid. And exactly what Cyrid means, we're not that sure. But Heartland, I've seen proposed as well, just slightly. There's some way that you can root Seer into something um, that means heart um, within the what we know of various Moorish tongues, but it's not really concrete. But either way, when we're talking about land, we'll talk about Cyrid. Uh, the people, we'll talk about Cyrodiil or the Cyrodiils. And... That stuff about where she comes from and where she went is about all we really know about Alessia before her rebellion, and it's that conflict that defines pretty much everything that we know about her. We don't actually even know her name. We have a part of the Atabala, which is attributed to Morahouse, who knew her very well, um, unpacking what her name actually means. Quote, In your tales, you have many names for her, Al-Esh, given to her in awe, that when translated sounds like a redundancy, the High High, from which come the more familiar corruptions. Aleshut, Esher, Alessia. You, you knew her as Paravant, given to her when first crowned, first of its kind, by which the gods meant a mortal worthy of the majesty that is killing, questing, healing, which is also Paraval, Pavesh, Perethu, Perif, and in my case, for it is what I called her when we were lovers, Paravania. I think the second part may hint here at some kind of thematic intent about what Alessia is supposed to be. The variety of P names sound increasingly like Percival to me, which I've also heard as Parsifal, 
in German and Peridur in Welsh. Percival was an Arthurian knight who was associated with the Holy Grail in the earliest Arthurian tales. He gets somewhat supplanted by Galahad in the later ones. I associate this with Alessia because of the name and the mention of killing, questing, healing, which feels moderately like the idea of a questing knight. And while we're in the realm of questing, of questing knights, I was half tempted to see if there's any sort of links to Spencer's Britomart from the Fairy Queen, but I'm not sure that Britomart is particularly relevant. She is a female knight, um, but she's not doing anything that is particularly similar to Alessia. So aside from, look, female warrior, I don't think there's any real connections. But the reason I'm being quite so wrapped up in knights and knight imagery is the idea of killing, questing, healing which feels a bit like what knights do. And for those of you who are a bit sceptical on the healing bit, uh, remember that the Hospital of St. John, which is also now St. John's Ambulance Service, by the way, was a knightly order originally. It was meant to provide rest and refuge for people travelling to the Holy Lands for the Crusades. And as to what healing Alessia did, she synthesised a lot of things, most particularly Cyrodiilic men, Aelids and Nords, which we'll get to later, as well as potentially healing the land. She prayed to the gods when Pelennol's rages destroyed portions of Cyrodiil, so she was inherently something that is quite diplomatic and mending of relations and mending of the land itself in that particular case. And... While killing, questing, healing is what knights do, it's also what player characters do in the Elder Scrolls. I've seen it mentioned, most particularly by the inducer in a particular comment on Reddit, that Alessia could have been a prisoner in the mystical sense in the Elder Scrolls. That is, one who sees their bonds of imprisonment within reality and then escapes them, changing things forever before fading into obscurity and the unknown. I've done a cast on the prisoner before if you want to go back and check out the full concept in detail, but the key point that the inducer makes is that all of Alessia's names are titles. We don't know her name, like every protagonist in The Elder Scrolls. We do have a defined gender for her, which would break the pattern a little, and she didn't quite fade into obscurity after achieving something big in quite the same way as the player characters, although there are some sources that claim that, actually. Um, but there are certainly some interesting parallels either way. Uh, she certainly brought about enough change to have broken existing patterns, and the idea of the event being the whole of her rebellion is certainly an interesting one to try and qualify her on that score. The biggest change, of course, was the shift in power in Syrid from Mur to Men, thanks mostly to Alessia's pact with someone in order to stop the Daedra coming through and just flattening everything that Alessia was trying to build. Exactly who or what Alessia made a pact with wasn't really that clear from the text we have. There seemed to be multiple pacts going on, doing different things. Just to kick off with what I think are probably the closest thing we have to authentic texts about Alessia, the second volume of the Song of Pelennor says this, quote, And then Perith spoke to the handmaiden again, eyes to the heavens which had not known kindness since the beginning of elven rule, and she spoke as a mortal whose kindle is beloved by the gods for its strength in weakness, a humility that can burn with metaphor and yet break easily and always be doomed to end in death, and this is why those who let their souls burn anyway are beloved of the dragon and his kin. And she said, And this thing I have thought of, I have named it, and I call it freedom, which I think is just another word for Shazar who goes missing. You made the first rain at his sundering, and that is what I ask now for our alien masters, that we might sunder them fully and repay their cruelty by dispersing them to drown in the topal. Morahouse, your son, mighty and snorting, gore-horned, winged, when next he flies down, let him bring us anger. And then Kine granted Perif another symbol, a diamond soaked red with the blood of elves, whose facets could unsect her and form into a man whose every angle could cut her jailers, and a name, Pelennel, which is the Star-Made Knight, and he was arrayed in armour from the future time. The Handmaiden here is Mara, the Handmaiden of Kine according to the Nords, and it's Kine who does the sending here, not Mara. And interestingly, Pelennel can be described as another symbol, 
Um, this is where I'd love to know about the rest of the lost song text, because we have the language of symbols and visions for Alessia in another text, which has a different spin on things. The Catechism of St. Alessia says she prayed to Akatosh, who grants her visions. Quote, St. Alessia, through her purity and wisdom, earned the love of all good beings, mortal and immortal. At Sankrator, she prayed to Akatosh for the liberation of her people, and the Time Dragon granted her three visions to guide her in this task. Though the road was long and filled with hardship, her faith sustained her. When at last all three visions had come to pass and her people were freed from Elven Dominion, her purpose was fulfilled and she was called to Apotheosis. This is another telling of the same event that we get from the song from what I can tell. Both talk about freedom in some shape or form and Alessia's initial appeal. It also says about three visions which are fulfilled during the rebellion. Pelinal is described as a symbol in the song, so I think he's one of them. So I think it's possible that Morahouse is another but I'm at a loss for the third. Maybe that vision was freedom itself and a vision of what the Empire of Cyrodiil could be. I'm not totally sure, but that seems to sort of fit. It doesn't slot into the same sort of categories as the other two visions because it's not a person, but it does kind of fit the idea of prophetic vision. I'm a little inclined to disagree with the catechism that it was... Akatosh that was prayed to, if I'm brutally honest though. The text has no author, but it's a catechism which makes it a religious teaching, it makes it dogma. That, and that it's focused on Akatosh, where the song just refers to the dragon in passing, says to me that it's likely to be a product of the Alessian Order, which was very keen to bring Akatosh to the fore and diminish other gods. They also claim that she was called to apotheosis, once the aliens were defeated. That smells a bit too like Tiber's official account to me. Someone just getting given godhood at a convenient moment in the narrative, while the truth is likely a bit more messy. Given that she's also known to be um, the mother of Minotaurs in some quarters through a relationship with Morahouse, the Olesian Order, which the book on Minotaurs notes may have wanted to expunge Minotaurs and other non-humans from the historical record, would obviously be wanting to remove the possibility of Alessia's relationship with a non-human. So it makes perfect sense to me that they would engage in a little bit of revisionism here and get rid of the possibility of Alessia being mother to Minotaurs by just getting rid of her at the end of when she's historically necessary and everything else she did after that doesn't really matter. The fact that there are three boot visions in there is about all I trust from that piece, to be honest, because it's one of the few things that the Order has no real motivation to tamper with. Plus, if the relationship with Morehouse did happen um, and that she then got um, made a god and ascended and all the rest of it, then being the mother of Minotaurs would have to happen really quickly. Alessia's revolt starts in the year 242 of the First Era and then ends a year later. Assuming a normal human gestation period for Belhaza, which I know is a leap, but mythical beasts tend to have longer gestations rather than shorter, um, that's only a few months for the relationship between Alessia and Morahouse to really form into something that's a romantic relationship, which, yeah, I know, relationships can form quickly on the battlefield and so on, and and I know three months is potentially enough time, but it still feels slightly out to me. Despite all of these inconsistencies, there has to have been a deal with Akatosh at some point, because Akatosh kept the barrier between Oblivion and Mundus sealed. This action is never associated with anyone else. So I think we can be fairly certain that there was a pact between Akatosh and Alessia at some point. We're just not sure when or entirely under what circumstances. And as I've kind of alluded to already, it also I always get the feeling that there would be more pacts that have been going on because Alessia seems to have been quite the diplomat. Uh, she brought in Nord's needs and some aliens potentially to um to her cause as well as having a good dose of either luck or planning or both with regards to when she kicks off the rebellion. The book, The Last King of the Aliads, notes that, quote, 
The first two centuries of the first era saw increasing strife between the great alien lords of Cyrodiil. Alessia appears to have taken advantage of a period of civil war to launch her uprising. Imperial historians have traditionally attributed her victory to intervention from Skyrim, but it appears that she had at least as much help from rebel alien lords during the siege of the White Gold Tower. If this is true, then Alessia took advantage of an already fractured alien polity to secure human dominance over Cyrod. Whether she meant any ill will towards the aliens who aided her afterwards is unclear, as the persecution came later well beyond when she would have been around. Her actions elsewhere, like the pact with the Nords and the various entreaties to gods and so on, make her just as much a diplomat as a conqueror, which, just as a quick aside, is one of the reasons why I don't really rate her as a Elder Scrolls Joan of Arc, because I don't think Joan of Arc was particularly noted to be a diplomat. My French history on that score is a little fuzzy, so I might be horribly wrong. Um, but Joan of Arc is known as kind of leading people directly in battle and rousing peasants and so on, and I'm sure Alessia did that. But her diplomacy and getting all of her pieces in a straight line, both in regards to gods and the nations around her, makes her more competent and more involved with the process. Part of her diplomacy and the compromise that she was um, involved with is her founding of the Eight Divines Pantheon, which is one of her most lasting legacies. This happens after the end of the rebellion, and the book Shazar and the Divines puts it like this, quote, when Skyrim lends its armies to the slave queen of the south, the revolution succeeds. The alien hegemonies are quickly overthrown. Shortly thereafter, White Gold Tower is captured by Lessia's forces, and she promptly declares herself the first empress of Cyrodiil. Part of the package meant that she had to become the high priestess of Akatosh as well. Akatosh was an old Murray god, and Lessia's subjects were as yet unwilling to renounce their worship of the elven pantheon. She found herself in a very sensitive political situation. She needed to keep the Nords as her allies, but they were at that time fiercely opposed to any adoration of elven deities. On the other hand, she could not force her subjects to revert back to the Nordic pantheon for fear of another revolution. Therefore, concessions were made and Empress Alessia instituted a new religion. The Eight Divines, an elegant, well-researched synthesis of both pantheons, Nordic and Ald Mary. And it's also possibly worth noting here that if she did have alien landowners and landholders to keep on side, which the last king of the aliens notes um, also kept hold of their lands after the rebellion, then she's got actual elven subjects to keep in line as well. So part of that is you've got to keep your aliens happy. And now, now, Shazar and the Divines is the only text that states that Akatosh was an old Mary god. All of the other texts put Auriel in that slot and say that it's an elven name for Akatosh, but never say that Akatosh is Murish himself. And this sort of gets back to some of the things that we were talking about with William's email earlier. But part of me wonders whether Oriel became Akatosh with the renaming and rebranding of some of the Nordic gods in the Divine. So you've got examples of Kine gets demoted within, her, within the Pantheon not to lead it anymore, and becomes Kinnereth, Orki becomes R.K., Junal becomes Julianos, and so on. And maybe Oriel becoming Akatosh was just another part of that synthesis. I've heard some people say that this is a possible moment where Akatosh was created rather than Oriel being reshaped, and the other possible moment uh, being um, of reshaping being when the Murakati selectives danced on the tower. But I'm not 100% convinced of that. I'd expect some serious sorcery to be undertaken as part of remaking a god, and Alessia was far more about appealing to gods and dealing with them than manipulating them. It's it's a possibility, but it's just it's not one that we have any real evidence for. It it would kind of fit, but um, I just don't really see if there's any that there's anything else there for it myself. Rather, I think that what Alessia did was something a bit more potent. She told stories. She told different stories to the ones that had been told before, which reshaped reality in the telling, maybe. I've said before in a previous cast that I'm not totally convinced that Mythopoeia is power gained from worship. 
in the sense if you believe something that it happens like happens in Discworld or American Gods or something like that. But maybe it's something that happens if you tell the same story over and over and the universe believes it, something like that. It feels like a fairly loose connection, but it's close to one I've made before, which seems to make some sense. And I will link to the post that I made about Mythopoeia and Faith on Reddit in the blog post that runs alongside this article. So do check that out. But I think that what Alessia was doing was telling stories and reshaping what people were seeing of the gods or how they saw them. It wasn't necessarily that it was redefining the gods, but it was redefining how people experience the gods. If you point at an object and say, that's Kine, and you're pointing at the same object and then saying, that's Kinnereth, you're starting to open up different connections potentially even at that kind of basic level simply from things like word association and so on so i think what alessia was doing was just reshaping how people thought about the gods rather than reshaping the gods themselves which in a world where there's some more indirect communication as well as direct communication with the gods then it amounts to the same thing i mean it doesn't happen with the daedra just go off on a tangent for a moment because the Daedra are directly experienced, but where you don't experience the Aedra, then the stories that you are told about them will shape what you think about them and how you see them, and that then affects your perception of them when you get any experience of them whatsoever. So I think that's what's happening here, and Alessia was reshaping it because of the stories she told. Uh, that notion of her being a storyteller and an author also vaguely chimes with a possible inspiration for Alessia. And I have to thank one of my patrons for pointing this out. So many thanks to Owen for no noticing this parallel. He no pointed out that I think it's pronounced Enhedwuna or something like that. That may have been a possible inspiration for Alessia, which I think is closer to the more obvious Joan of Arc parallel. I mean, Joan of Arc is just woman leads armies is about the closest link you can get. And then potentially, well, I suppose they both became saints. Um, but Enhedwuna is, I think, one that's a bit more interesting. She was born in ancient Sumeria. She was the daughter of Sargon of Akkad. And she was not a slave, but her father was supposedly born the son of a palace gardener, so born into something approaching slavery. Enhedwuna herself was a priestess and the first named author in history, which really, for me, chimes with the first of its kind title that Alessia got. And she may have also engaged in a degree of religious syncretism, simply because ancient Mesopotamia's pantheons lived on and shifted between the different empires for quite a while, so she was adding her own Akkadian gloss to some previously existing deities and things that they might have done. I'm also inclined to think that this might be the case. Michael Kirkbride has noted before in a forum post that Gilgamesh was a, an inspiration for Pelennor. So given that Enhedwina was playing in the same part of the world and the same sort of mythic makeup, I really think Owen is onto something with this particular parallel. So thank you for pointing that out, Owen. Much appreciated. After the foundation of the Eight Divines and birthing Belhaza, we don't hear an awful lot of, about Alessia before her death, and even what we hear about that is contested. We've already spoken about the Alessian Order's attempts to claim that she ascended after the war to overthrow the Aelids, but for all we know about her after that point, she might as well have done. My objection to that idea is the timeline of Belhaza's conception more than anything else that we actually know about Alessia. And the Catechism itself isn't the only source that hints at a death that isn't quite death. The last volume of the Song of Palinol says this, quote, Let us now take you up. We will show our true faces, which eat each other in amnesia each age. This suggests that something close to Enoch, they were perhaps taken up before they died, or Elijah is another parallel there if you want to stick with the Hebrew ones. But that's just, just being taken up, literally, before she was dead. And there's some interesting notes about being taken up, because it means you don't have any physical remains. Uh, there's also just some very interesting implications about the relationship between Lorcan and Akatosh that I just wanted to flag here, because Pelennol said that, Oh, Aka, for our shared madness do I do this. 
and is probably the closest thing we're going to get to knowing about a Shazarine, so connected to Shazar or a part of Shazar. Um, and this text is saying we will show our true faces and which eat each other in amnesia each age. So going back to Will's email at the beginning of this episode, this is another piece of the puzzle of are Akatosh and Lorcan in fact the same being? Because we've got faces here which eat each other and Pelinol is speaking for both of them, which is very, very weird. Um, but anyway, tangent over. We also have this particular piece of text from the book, The Amulet of Kings, which in a roundabout way also talks about an ascension or a not normal death of sorts. Quote, In token of this covenant, Akatosh gave to Alessia and her descendants the Amulet of Kings, in the eternal dragonflies of the Imperial City. Thus does Alessia become the first gem in the Cyrodiilic Amulet of Kings. The gem is the red diamond in the middle of the amulet. Now this implies that Alessia became the Amulet of Kings upon her death in a way. It makes it rather interesting um, as to what the Amulet of Kings actually is because you hear some talk about the oversoul of emperors when you look at where were you when the dragon broke um, that's contained within the Amulet of Kings. And so it's a repository of souls, but it's also potentially a physical embodiment of Alessia if the Red Diamond is Alessia personified. We heard earlier about the um, Amulet of Kings possibly being Pelinol because of it being a blood blood-soaked gem that could sector and unform and essentially become Pelinol. But on this account, the Red Diamond is Alessia rather than Pelinol. We've got another text that claims that it's Akatosh's blood directly. The Trials of St. Alessia claims this, quote, Akatosh drew from his breast a burning handful of his heart's blood, and he gave it into Alessia's hand, saying, This shall be a token to you of our joined blood and pledged faith. So long as you and your descendants shall wear the amulet of kings, then shall this dragon fire burn, an eternal flame, as a sign to all men and gods of our faithfulness. Now, this is the more traditional telling of the story, that the amulet is Akatosh's blood and given as a token of the pact to keep Ak Oblivion shut. Then there's Chim Adabal, a ballad, which claims blood was taken from Lorcan's heart and was then turned into a gem by the Aelids and then given by Akatosh after it already existed. So there's a good amount of confusion as to what the amulet actually is. And if we go by the forum thread, Amulet, Amulet, who put her in the Amulet, which was originally on the Bethesda forums, that it turns out one of the things that Michael Kirkbride said on that thread was that it's meant to be ambiguous that about who gave Alessia the Amulet in order to imply that as we started this podcast and have kind of carried on with, that Shazar and Akatosh are the same being. Some people are seeing the... Amulet being given by Shazar, some people are seeing it as Akatosh because they're the same thing and two different sides of the same coin. Alessia being made into the Amulet of Kings seems to make sense in some ways, as at least according to the legendary Sancrator, her burial site is unknown, so it's possible that she doesn't actually have one. If she either ascended or became the Amulet of Kings, she wouldn't have a burial place. And so that explains that her death isn't something that was natural in any way, although I would assume that there are some scholars out there that believe she did die something of a natural death and think that you can find her body. The a legendary Sankator does, does say Alessia's burial site is unknown, uh, but that just implies that there is a burial site that is unknown. Um, it's just not that there isn't one, if that makes any sense. I'm being a little garbled in pointing that out. But um, the lack of a burial site isn't something that that particular text countenances. So there are some that think she died a natural death. There are some that think that she ascended because of something of her deeds in conquering Cyrodiil, that sort of thing. And normally we'd end things with a character's death, but Alessia is one of the few where there's some substantial carrying on um, stuff after her death, ways of looking at her, thinking about her, and that sort of thing. Alessia was revered as a saint by the Cyrodiils sometime after her death, which 
and sainthood in the Elder Scrolls terms feels a little bit like ancestor worship smashed into Catholic saint veneration. Uh, various forms of it existed throughout Syrod's history, but nothing exactly clear that I can find apart from acts of commemoration, things like feast days or eating a particular food in memory of saint whoever, that sort of thing. There's no concrete rituals to go through to, to pay your respects to the saints as such. Um, and I think the Dunmer saint worship or veneration is probably a bit more developed in that sense. But Saint Alessia gets a bit more than your general saint thanks to the Alessian order. The order used the notion of sainthood as a way to keep but diminish other gods in their canon of worship, if you believe the first edition pocket guide. And Alessia is used as a tool of the order here as well. She's used as a symbol of proper hatred of the elves, an example to follow and venerate. And the bit where she was actually accommodating the aliens and using the her in part of her armies, yeah, they'll just brush that bit under the carpet and just try and ignore it as much as possible. Um, it also feels that as well as being a saint, Alessia gets identified with the soil of Cyrodiil itself. She's called the Queen Art Cyrod in a few places and gets equated with the land by the prophet in the Knights of the Nine expansion to the Elder Scrolls IV, who says this when talking about Raman. Quote, I am Cyrodiil come, he said, old Raman, born of the earth that is Al-Esh, and yet he would scorn this country now. Now this is referring to the event in the Remonada, where King Hrol chases the spirit of Alessia and makes love to both it and a hillock at the same time. And it's described like this, quote, And the spirit fled from them, and they split among the hills and forests to find her, all grieving that they had become a villainous people. Hrol and his shield thane were the only ones to find her. And the king spoke to her, saying, I love you, sweet Aless, sweet wife of Shaw, and of Oriel, and the sacred bull, and would render this land alive again, not through pain, but through a return to the dragon fires of Covenant, to join east and west and throw off all ruin. And the shield thane bore witness to the spirit, opening naked to his king, carving on a nearby rock the words, And Hrol did love unto a hillock, before dying in the sight of their union. I think this passage gives a pretty decent picture of how Alessia is seen. She is kind of the patron saint of Cyrodiil and connected to an awful lot of bits and pieces. Um, she is she is the land, um, and so you've got the idea of Raman being both the son of Alessia in a spiritual sense and the son of Cyrodiil of the earth. And if you think about Alessia as the mother of Cyrodiil, as the founder of the first human empire in Cyrodiil, then her giving birth to the next empire kind of makes sense on a sort of a genetic genealogical level. So Raman was kind of desperate to tie that legitimacy in with the first empire, quite literally in what was being done here. The, the Remonada might well be a work of complete fiction, but um, the kind of symbology that's engaged with here to try and get Raman to be a legitimate ruler is quite interesting because he's engaging with or engaging her role with the mother that is identified with Cyrodiil is, is that earth, is that land. And so in order to be able to rule the land and, so, and make a good job of it, then you need to be able to engage with Alesh and have that relationship with Alessia, with Cyrodiil, in order to carry it all out. Because of this way of thinking of Alessia as sort of the source of legitimacy for claiming to rule Cyrodiil, as well as the Amulet of Kings and all that, I was looking for some references to Tiber claiming Alessian descent as well, but I can't really see anything beyond his quite deliberate conquest of Sancrator to claim the Amulet of Kings. The closest that Tiber comes to claiming any sort of previous lineage to, or connection to previous empires beyond what is given as the Amulet of Kings is his status as the inheritor of the Raman Empire, which he used as pretext for meddling with Hamathel and 
he used that to say, well, I need to interfere with this and prop up the forebears. And so this is why I take the place over to defend what was in the Roman Empire rather than anything to do with Alessia as such. I mean, there is the implication of if you can wear the Amulet of Kings, which Tiber could, then you're a descendant of Alessia. That's how that was seen. But there's no explicit matching up and doing anything to Alessia or the symbol of Alessia in the way that's done with the Roman Empire. And I think that is about where we're going to end it at this point. I do hope you've enjoyed the ramble that I've had going through Alessia and all things related to Alessia in this particular episode. Um, if you have, please do leave a review wherever you're listening. I'd absolutely love to hear back from my listeners and anything that I can do to make this a better experience for you guys would be great to know. And in the meantime, if you've also got any suggestions for an episode as well, a particular topic you want me to cover, please do drop me a line at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com or follow me on the Written Uncertainty Discord. There are details to all of this in the show notes as well if you want to look that up. So with that, I'm going to say farewell for now. Um, I have had another email in saying what my opinions on The Elder Scrolls 6, which I may make a mini-sode of, but just a reminder that the um, episodes are going to be coming a little bit more infrequently now or more infrequently than they have been, which is quite infrequently enough, to be honest. But um, I will be taking a break of sorts once that mini-sode is done um, and then we'll be restarting again once I've got some topics lined up and a good amount of research under my belt before picking things up again. So thank you ever so much for being on this being on this journey with me and and i hope you will join me next time when i'll discuss the geopolitics of the elder scrolls 6 and until then this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty you've been listening to written in uncertainty a podcast written and hosted by aramithius and mixed and mastered by Dopportunity. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glimbotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Hey, I'm Pylon. And I'm Doc. And if you've ever played an Elder Scrolls game, you've probably used UESP.net to help you find information about a quest, dive deeper into lore, or really learn anything about the Elder Scrolls. But did you know we have a podcast too? Every week we bring you the latest in Elder Scrolls news, dig deeper into topics surrounding the game, and have a ton of fun while doing it. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher by searching the unofficial Elder Scrolls podcast. Can't wait to see you all there. In a world where solid-state electronics and vacuum tubes are still meta, people never stop loving atomic-powered everything. A chosen 500 stepped inside a subterranean vault to be spared the nuclear horror of the inevitable Great War. 25 years later, they emerge after the fallout settles to retake Appalachia. Among them, two former rivals whose blood feud will tear West Virginia apart in their epic struggle for survival. Chad, a vault bro who has a strength of 15, an intelligence of 2, and is a complete wasteland dickhead. Simon, a complicated anti-hero who chooses light and hope, but accidentally becomes a cannibal, and wakes up naked and afraid with a Scorch Beast Queen after a date goes terribly wrong. What? I mean, it's a wild wasteland, right? This dark humor radio drama will have you driving off the road and crawling out from under the fallout. Two men. One wasteland. And so many nukes. Chad, a Fallout 76 podcast. Rated R. Now streaming on your holotape player podcasty thing.
Ahoy there, ye landlubbers. Avast, my name is Captain Logan, and I'll be your guide out on the Sea of Thieves. If you love the idea of stealing treasure, cutting down cursed skeletons, fighting off krakens, and raiding forts filled to the brim with shinies, then Sea of Thieves is the game for you. Join me each week as I dive into the news and bring back the nuggets of information that any sailor worth their weight in salt would desire. You don't have to be a pirate legend to gain access to my podcast. Just search for Keelhauled, a Sea of Thieves podcast in your podcast app of choice or head over to robotsradio.net or captainlogan.podbeam.com and get ready to set sail for adventure. Arrgh.